Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Tiffany Bloom on the show. She is the author of the book I have in front of me, Pray Tell, and uh, the host of the Why Though podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, I am so, so honored to be here. Also, major props for the name of your podcast. So good. It stands out. It's fabulous. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. A lot, I, w- I was worried when I did it that like nobody would get it, but I get a lot of good feedback on it. So I'm glad that it, it resonates, but it's good. It's too good. But yeah. So you wrote this book. Uh, the obvious question is why though? What, what was the, what was the reason <laughs> for, for doing this book and, and doing it now? Cause it seems like there's a lot of people starting to talk about, you know, abuse or starting to talk about, you know, all of these issues in a pretty concentrated way, it feels like, but all from their own angle. So what was it for you that kind of pushed you to get started on this project right now? Yeah. So a many number of years ago, I found myself in a situation speaking truth to power in an environment where I played by all the rules. I did what was told. I Um, I had all the right marks and the system failed me. So as I spoke truth to power, I lost more in the process than I ever imagined possible. And as I dug into why I wasn't believed that I was disposable and the man in power who abused his power at a woman's expense was indispensable, I discovered the societal, professional, financial, and spiritual ramifications of silencing women, why it's so effective, and how we all are cogs in this system of complicity. And it really does affect every sector of society. Right. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does. And that's something that I'm noticing kind of reading through all the different resources I've been going through and kind of trying to get to the bottom of like, how does this happen? Um, And it, it, it is, it's like a, I think it's, it's almost become like almost a cliche to say it's a systemic problem, but I think that's like the only way to describe it is like, it's something that happens in churches, it happens in businesses and it starts 
from the ground up. And I'm kind of curious because I know your your original background is India, which is a very, very patriarchal system. I mean, you know, I have I have actually have a lot of experience with India. We used to work quite a bit over there. And, um, you know, it's it's a it's an environment where to be a woman, you know, is a is a very difficult position to be in. And um, I'm just curious, do you do you have, I know that was very early in childhood. Do you have any memories or do you feel like that uh, you experienced that or saw that at all uh, as a, as a child? Uh, No, I wouldn't say I have any memories. I was adopted uh, shy of my second birthday, but as I've come to understand the situation surrounding my birth and Mm -hmm. as I've come to understand um, the region I'm from and having the opportunity to go back quite a few times, really seeing that I was a product of a broken system that didn't value women. The reason I'm, I was adopted, the reason I don't live in my first culture and speak my first mother tongue is because of how women are treated. So very much to prove your point, it is, it, it's so systemic and it's so ingrained in every culture in the world. And it really is on full display in patriarchal cultures mm. such as India or really anywhere in South, South Asia. You see how women are second, they're objectified, and this is just the way things are. Um, they're to be conquered, they're to be taken, they're to be had. They're not seen as equals. And although they've come so far in, uh, in politics, in practice, it's still a, a country that, I mean, just, just take their orphan count alone, over 26 million orphans no. in India at any given time, clearly shows you uh, the lack of care and the way women are treated. Um, and obviously there's so many more factors that play into that poverty and, and, uh, familial care, but it really is, it's jarring to think mm-hmm. about the widespread patriarchy. You know, I think of, um, as very, you know, we, we think of this infant infanticide, right. Where so many little girls before they're a month old are murdered by their own parents because they can't afford a dowry. They don't want to have a girl. So you have this imbalance where there's so many more boys in India than there are girls, especially, um, in the eighties, it was, it was even more popular. And, Mm -hmm. and uh, to my knowledge, um, ultrasounds are still banned because if they find out they're going to have a girl, they'll, they'll find a way to go get an abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was reading an, uh, an article in, um, India business times in the last few years. And it just talked about, uh, this mother and father and their little baby girl were out on a walk along the riverbank and um, the father said, oh, she's fussy. I, I need to, I need to rock her. And he took her out and then he just threw her in the river. Mm. And, it, and this mother's just like overcome with angst at what her husband just did yeah. as if they were better off by getting rid of this little girl. And so that seed of uh, subjugation mm. you see in every culture. And so in our Western context, it really is uh, pervasive, just as you said, in both uh, mainstream and, and sacred culture where we truly believe that women are either broken men, you know, the, the early church fathers believed that women were deformed men. Um, we believe that they're to be had or taken advantage of or subjugated or silenced. And we've ordered them in such a way where they can't rise above it. And in our modern day, we obviously have laws and rules to, to ensure that women have safety and dignity. But again, it goes back to what's in principle isn't always in yeah. practice. Yeah. And we have systems left, right, and center where you see this happening, where a woman walks in unknowingly into a toxic system and is taken advantage of and manipulated. And I just want to say this happens to 
insecure women. This happens to young women. This happens to old women. This happens to professional women. This happens to confident, secure, emotionally healthy women. This happens to everyone across the board because if there's room for narcissism, which we often see as a prerequisite for male leadership, <laughs> um, then you're going to see abuse of power at a woman's expense. Right. Um, I have to ask this because I mean, you, you talked quite a bit in the beginning of the book. And I thought it was good to give the groundwork of your kind of personal experience. And you talked a lot about how, you know, you felt a need to stay silent. You know, you felt this need to stay silent, both as a woman and as a person of color, like it's two strikes against you, you know, nice. again, like technically in the US, that's not the case. Technically on paper, that shouldn't be any strike against you, but right. in principle, it definitely was. And so mm -hmm. um, you, you, you mentioned kind of early on, like there was this idea that, you know, you were silent because you felt like you could make excuses for the way that men acted. You can make excuses for the way the system was. And then you, you made the statement until your convictions like outweighed your loyalties. And yeah. I, I, I really love that statement. I think it's, I think that's kind of the breaking point that everyone I've talked to on the show gets to is where their loyalty right. to a pastor is there until their convictions start kicking in a lot stronger than that loyalty does. Um, what was it that started tipping that? Like, was that a super long journey for you of like that those scales starting to tip or was it something that kind of instantly pushed that over the edge and said like, okay, there's an issue here. Oh, I, you set that up so well. There's such an internal dialogue. For me, it was a very, very long process. I'm a three on the Enneagram, rather agreeable, diplomatic, want the best for everybody, want everyone to get along. Everyone needs to like each other. Nothing's wrong, right? You know, mm. always see the glass half full. And so for me, it was uh, ignorance is bliss in the beginning of my situation where I'm like, no, surely this man doesn't mean that even though I had solid evidence otherwise right. in the way of crude joking, in the way of um, eyes lingering too long and making eye contact, in the way of, hey, let me buy you a coffee. All these kind things that were weaponized against me and against mm. the women in my world. And so as time went on, the internal dialogue where you have to weigh that conviction versus loyalty comes in when you realize your proximity to power and what you have to lose in the system that you're in. Because this book is very much written by the bystander. I was the person being like, is this my job to speak up? Is this an ethical right. issue for me too? And that's what I want the conversation about this book to be is, what is my role in this, even if I'm not the one who was victimized per se? Because mm -hmm. we all have that ethical dilemma of, do I stay loyal if this didn't happen to me? Right. Or do I speak up? And so mm -hmm. for me, again, very long process. And weighing what I would lose, I was the breadwinner at the time for my family. Um, both my husband and I were employed by the same institution. Mm. Um, our kid was in private school at this institution. I mean, this was it was a it was, it was, it was a big place, and so we we knew that there'd be so much to lose. And to be honest with you, thinking of the relationships we would lose, thinking of our faith community, thinking of um, just the 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 work that we had done, and professionally, all that I would lose. It was a lot to weigh. And so mm. I waited for quite some time. And really the breaking point for me was when someone came to me with news of the very worst kind. And it was the moment of, this is a sinking ship. I'm either going to call for help against the will and hope of these leaders, mm. or I'm going to sink down with it. Right. And so I really felt like, I, I know that they would be much happier if I stayed silent, but I will not be able to live with myself 
if I don't. And add to that, which I share a little bit about in Pray Tell is I was having night terrors. Um, I was, I would, I would get sick in the middle of the night. I mean, I was a tortured soul with the information I knew and the misconduct that I had witnessed. And I was, I was a, a shell of a human. It was truly a painful, dark experience, constantly paranoid, constantly thinking this person knew what I knew about him. Um, mm. Because quite honestly, he had so much more power, that imbalance of power. I knew what he could do to destroy my life. And honestly, he did it. He did everything I thought he would do. So it's one of those things of when you weigh that loyalty to the conviction, you know, there's consequences either way. So what are you going to do? Are you going to lie to yourself and hand yourself over to someone else's agenda and someone else's will and someone else's way and not think for yourself? Or are you going to face consequences that could be outrageously detrimental to your family and trust that the Lord's going to help you rebuild? Right. What, why do you think so many people opt to sink down with the ship? Because we see all these stories happening, you know, name the church. I mean, there, there's people just that stay on board and it always seems like the, the outlier is the person who's speaking out, whether they were the victim or not. Yeah, and it, it usually, it usually isn't the victim. The victim is usually gotten out of the church by the church or by the organization or by the company. Right. And, and then it's like one or two whistleblowers that might follow suit. But why do you think the majority stay? Do you think it's ignorance or do you think it's pure avoidance of what they know is happening? Because I, I look at some situations, I, I look at the church that I grew up in and we had situations, uh, you know, where there's, I mean, there's still to this day, every, every Sunday morning, there's a predator on the platform leading music. Um, and I know some really amazing people at that church. I have family at that church, but they don't see the issue that I see. And yeah. it's very confusing. So why do you think that? corporately, there tends to be this kind of denial of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Almost like corporate Stockholm syndrome. So what you see here is there's no conscious um, overt choice of like, I'm going to stay with a predator. It's it's nothing of the sort. What happens is when we meet somebody and they are benevolent, kind, generous, uh, spiritual, they make us feel seen, known, loved. We have a moment with the Lord that we attribute to their leadership. Mm -hmm. It is almost impossible to change our mind on how we first believe someone when they gave us their first impression. We are so married to our understanding of who they are the first time that we've met them that we cannot uh, deal with the dissonance of who and what they could do behind closed doors that do not match the reality that they've presented to us, even if that information is presented to us by someone we care for, Mm. by someone we love. It could be our own kid. And we might still side with the predator, that, that abuser of power. Again, this is amplified in faith context because you, when you mix the spiritual with the abuse, it is so dangerous for the psyche because you're like, no, I believe that this person is good. And what we do is we employ that confirmation bias of, I will look for reasons. I will look extra hard for reasons that will agree and confirm my initial belief about Mm. this person. And I will stick to that. So then we build this resume in our brain of why this person could never do this. Even if there's clear, concrete evidence (laughs) proving that this person has done um, a hellacious act, we give what we call the halo effect. We give them this halo and and everything they touch is gold. Everything they touch, everything they do is right. And we weigh their accolades Mm. and how they made us feel. And we we overly uh, value any kindness they offer 
to continually keep that halo on their head. They mm -hmm. might look our way, give a handshake, you know, during the greeting time at church. And we feel like, oh my gosh, they think the world of us. So we'll go to bat for them uh, at an unequal proportion of the kindness they've shown to us. Right. And we'll begin to see things from their side. We're, we're, we're essentially groomed. We're corporately groomed. Yeah. In, and, and know that narcissists who are abusing their power, they are going out of their way, out of their way to corporately groom people. Because if things ever do hit the fan, they need their troops ready to defend right. them. And it's outrageously effective. We see this time and time again. We see this with uh, recently the Andy Savage case. He had a standing ovation after yeah. he personally had his own mouth admitted to sexual abuse of a minor. He was given yeah. a standing ovation. Right. That's how you groom corporately. That's how you convince people this person is good. Mm. Now, when you cross those wires with some faulty theology that offers forgiveness without repentance, shoot, we just, we just that's a whole hot mess. It's a whole right. hot mess because we're offering what is not to be given. You know, I, I, I really love to look at the story of David and Nathan, where Nathan is a, is, a, is a whistleblower. He's an ally. He's a male ally to Bathsheba. And often we don't see it that way because they're not in the same scene. Right. But he goes before David. I know who you are and I know what you've done. And he reads him as male. And what does David do? He repents. He repents. We love to be like, no, don't touch the Lord's anointed. He's a man after God's own heart. Mm. David repented. He was full of sorrow. And we would love to think that he was restored fully. He was never fully restored to what he had before he abused his power at Bathsheba's mm. expense. His own son tried to take his throne. His kingdom was never what it was before. Even the ancient of days isn't going to let things go. There's, there's consequences. Right. Yeah. The, the idea of the corporate grooming is like super powerful. And that's something that comes up quite a bit in the show when I, when I chat with people. And even before that, I, I remember talking to, um, I, I remember just talking to a pastor about a, a large megachurch pastor within the independent Baptist movement. And um, we brought up all these different allegations that had been made and all these different things. And uh, he just said, you know, I, I just can't believe that because, you know, when I was a young pastor, I didn't have any money. He's like, he took me out and he bought me my first suit and he bought me this pair of shoes and he, he took care of my family when we went through this. And, um, you know, I've also heard that the statements recently, you know, it's, it's, um, someone was on the phone and they said, do you really want to throw away someone's entire life over, you know, one bad action out of 30 years of ministry, you know, that, that those kind of statements are true. Do, do you think there's also that level to where we're worried of admitting that we were groomed? Like, is there, do you think there's a level oh. where, where we're sitting there going, man, you know, if we admit that they did this, we're admitting that the, the person that we brought our kids to their church's Sunday school, or we yeah. put our kids in this school, you know, we're admitting that we missed a red flag. Do you think there's that level of it as well? Yeah. I just have to say, you're the first person to ask that question. And I just, that is a conversation that I have not had with anyone yet huh. around um, this book. So I just first want to say, thank you for seeing it from that angle. That's so valuable. And there is this moment when we see somebody do something bad who formerly we believed was good. And we can't handle the dissonant reality that people are both good and bad. Shonda Rhimes seemed to figure that out, but mm -hmm. we can't seem to figure it out. The people can be both good and bad because what happens is not only do we have to admit that we've been groomed and that we've been duped and we're questioning how we trust people 
not just that person, but how we have treated and trusted and, and, and delivered our own connection with other people, we also have to admit that this can happen to us. Mm. We love to believe that a woman deserved it because mm. if she didn't, then the whole system is ruined and anyone is fair game to be abused or taken advantage of. And right. there's no way to prevent it on our own. Mm. And that's terrifying. And I think there, for me, I, 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 again, I've just never thought of it like that. The way you presented it is in my own situation, I, I, I was so proud. I mean, the majority of mentors in my life have been men, amazing men of God, of valor and kindness and respect and dignity and honor and accountability. And so when I was um, so preyed upon, I not only felt shame, like, how did I not see this? But I was, I was taught to trust. I was taught to trust my leaders. I was taught to, to trust my spiritual leaders that they had my best interest at heart. So it, it's also this, uh, it's this abuse of trust that we have to grapple with. It's not only were we, we have to admit that we're groomed and there's shame in that. There really is some shame in that, that, that we have to process, but admitting that we have been preyed upon and our, our spirituality and our, our body and our time and our, our generosity have all been preyed upon to advance somebody else's agenda that will not serve the flock, that will not serve the whole, but that is self-serving. You know, I, I want to go back to a statement you said, but you know, this is the guy who taught Sunday school. This guy bought me my first suit. This guy dedicated my babies. This guy baptized me when I was 17. He couldn't possibly do this, right? He married and us. You know, he married like, us, you right. know? Yeah, he buried my mom. We, we, we have all these moments. And often it's in, it's in really crucial moments that meant a lot to us. And the sad thing is likely he knew that that meant a lot to us. And secondly, it is something to grieve. It just is something to grieve that somebody who could be so benevolent and kind is also taking advantage of women or abusing his power, any imbalance of power. I'm not talking about women anymore. Just any imbalance of power, taking advantage, advantage of finances, taking advantage um, and just lying, dishonesty, the, the, the list goes on. Um, in my situation, infidelity aside, this person was a monster, a monster. And so I just, the imbalance of power can go so far when you feel so, when you feel like you walk in the room and this person's going to slander you, but they also dedicated your babies. And when you were in a tight spot, they were the first person you called because you trusted them to show up and they did. And so again, being able to see that, uh, again, look at the example of David, a man after God's own heart and chosen as the king of Israel, but still, um, sexually assaulted a woman. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a book uh, by Jessica Taylor. She talks about like the idea of rape myths and it's, the book is called why women, um, or, yeah, why women are blamed for everything. I was like, that doesn't, I thought it was a subtitle at first, but, um, but one of the things she talks about is that, um, when it comes to the idea of like women being raped, we tend to think of like it being their responsibility. Right. And she said, Victim. men tend to use rape myths to excuse or minimize sexual violence. Women tend to use rape myths to deny their personal vulner vulnerability. Exactly. So it's, it makes us feel safe to say that would never happen to us, or it makes us feel safe to say we would spot it, or it makes us feel safe to say like, I wouldn't have gone to that party or yeah. <laughs> drank that or trusted that person or went alone with them, you know, going door to door, knocking doors in my people at church. Like we wouldn't have done that. But the reality is like, it could happen anyway, because these guys are good at what they do. Like so that's, good. you know, and I, I, it kind of raised another question too. And I know you've probably talked 
doing the book, I'm sure you've talked to a ton of people who have stories and, and, and relate to these kind of situations. Do you feel like most of the, most of the men, and we'll speak, speak primarily to men because that's who you kind of focus in on, on, on the book. Um, do you feel like most of them were monsters going into ministry, going into these positions, or do you feel like it's something where as they were given unchecked power, as they were given no accountability, they became that because I, I see with child abusers for sure. Like there's people that become pastors to get access to children. Like that's, right. it's just, that's a whole different strain, but just broadly abusers. Do you feel like it's a, it's kind of a symptom of the system or do you feel like it's people who know what they're doing and play the system generally? It's both. It's both. And, and let's first speak to your, your first uh, idea Research shows that as men have more access to power, specifically unchecked power, resources, platform, um, decision-making without accountability, research shows that as men have more power, they believe they're more sexually attractive, more desirable, and they will seek out, I repeat, they will seek out sexual affairs, not always in consensual relationships. So there is clear evidence that this happens. You see it in politics, entertainment, business, obviously church. Um, so their power truly does corrupt, especially when it comes to, I mean, sexuality and what he believes that he deserves. Yeah. Now on the flip side of that power and platform and opportunity to lead others is the perfect opportunity to groom those around you to bend your way. So you can take advantage of them. Let's take the Bill Hybels situation. For example, he groomed women to his, his inner circle, his inner core to the top teams. He gave them what they wanted opportunity to lead opportunity to preach opportunity to lead worship. And so then he had, he had people to pick from that he'd groomed who owed him something who felt so indebted to him. I, I say in the book, in my situation, no one had given me more opportunity and no one had exploited my loyalty more. Hmm. So it's a both and I think that truly that power, there is a biological change that happens where men believe that they not only deserve uh, sexual gratification by those around them, but will actively seek it out. Hmm. And then of course we do see men who specifically pursue power, just as you said, similar to uh, pastors who abuse children at churches or anywhere that they can get their hands on kids. Uh, you'll see the same thing where narcissism is rewarded and, and narcissistic qualities are so easily masked in leadership yeah. and especially in church leadership where there might not be a robust HR protocols or bylaws to handle um, abusive power, even on a micro level. What happens is those micro um, micro traumas that are committed at the hands of a narcissist are not handled. So then they just grow and grow and grow and grow. And in my situation, the smaller stuff was never handled. And before you know it, there was a trail of women um, taking advantage of whose lives were destroyed um, because a man had unchecked power and the right. small stuff wasn't handled. Right, right. How, so how do you kind of prevent this? Because you've got, I mean, like you said, just the same way that power can be masked as, you know, being a leadership trait and like Chuck DeGrosse's right. book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, like nails that and totally. and um it honestly made me super paranoid because i was reading and i was like is this is this me is this about me <laughs> you know is this is, and because you go i think we all go into we go into books or topics like that and we have like people in mind who are like oh, oh yeah. that's them that's this person you know and, and then he would give definitions and i was like 
I was like, well, is that just something I'm good at? Or is that something that like, is that narcissistic? Is that, and, um, and then I was like, well, if I'm thinking this book's about me, that's (laughs) that's narcissistic. (laughs) It it really just spun me out a little bit, but then it also made me realize too, as I got further through the book, I was like, oh, there's a lot of these traits layered on top of each other that point to very specific people. And it narrowed my definition quite a bit to where, like, I used to think everybody that was you know, I tend to default to like, oh, you're a, you have a public platform. You're probably a narcissist, you know, which isn't really fair, but then you go kind of more narrowed in. It's like, there's a whole character trait, like layout of who this person is. Um, but I'm curious, like, cause it, it, it is, I think through a lot of times this conversation gets lost because, you know, (laughs) it's funny, but like a lot of, especially white men tend to feel, you know, victimized by these kind of conversations, you know, it's like, well, you're going after, you know, how come white men can't be successful, you know, which is like such a funny thing to be complaining about, you know, (laughs) but it, but it's one of those things where it is a good question is like, when does it become an issue? Like, when does the power become an issue? Because it does, it gets portrayed as, Hey, you have a bigger impact for the kingdom, or you have more success for the company, or you have like, it, it looks really good. Like to have, 20, you know, satellite ministries and a TV show and radio show and a book and, you know, 10 more books and a magazine that all looks really good. And I don't think any of us would say like those things are inherently bad, but, but how do you, how do you prevent the, the too much power situation without hindering the growth of say, like, you know, a ministry or an individual, you know, kind of hitting their quote unquote potential. Right. It's both lateral accountability and vertical accountability. There has to be lateral accountability. And this person in power, you know, uh, I was having a conversation yesterday about this idea of anointing is we don't really see that in the New Testament. That is an Old Testament understanding. Mm -hmm. Besides the Queen of England, we are all uh, humble servants of the king. And so this idea that this one man, and just to go with your analogy, this one white man is anointed to lead. And in reality, he is accountable laterally to other men and women, men and women, and also vertically to other men and women. And we've, you know, various theology would not agree with that. But if you want to prevent abuse of power, I'll tell you right now, we need more women in power to prevent Mm. this. If more women were on boards, if more women were elders, if more women had places where they could spot things, you know, research shows that women on boards prevent male CEOs from making rash decisions. Hmm. Women on boards and women in places of power, it, it increases economies. The GDP goes up in any country in the world where women have equal power to men at the highest levels of leadership. And so if you want to prevent this, there has to be accountability. And I, this is just, this isn't like something I have written and published, but I just want to say it out loud. If you really want accountability as that top leader, you have to be willing to do whatever is asked of you. You need it. I was reading an article about um, Robbie Zacharias and mm. saying, if you want to prevent this, you make pastors take a polygraph every year, excuse me, every month, every mm. month, youth pastors, there's no room for leadership. If you're willing to have anything hidden, your iPhone should be any messages should be, be able to access your email server, everything you want to be honest, be honest, be yeah. honest, have yeah. a select amount of people who can see your transactions, who can see your interaction, where you're spending your money, who you're spending your money with. Um, I, I want to use the example of Carl Lentz, uh, the gal who came forward. She noticed that when Carl asked for her number, he put it in his notes app. Mm. 
he didn't put it in his in his address book. That's a man who knew what he was doing. That's a man yeah. who knew how to abuse his power. That's a man who knew how to hide his abuse of power. So this right. lateral and vertical accountability to the top. But let's talk about the bottom for a second. How do you prevent it? Very aptly named bystander intervention. Before it's on CNN or RNS does an article or Christianity Today has their server crashed because we're reading about abuse of power at a woman's expense, we can do something so small as bystander intervention. When you walk in and you see a conversation between a man and woman and that woman, her body language doesn't look confident in herself. That man is talking or looking at her in a way or you're hearing the subject content and it's not particularly appropriate. Putting yourself in the situation and diffusing, hey, did you wanna go grab a coffee? Make it awkward, it's fine. Hey, uh, oh, I needed you for a minute. Can I just talk to you? Being able to just interject, and the military has employed this in every branch because the amount of sexual harassment and assault is so uh, rampant in every area and in every level of leadership, particularly low-level leadership. And so they 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 are really the, the leaders in this, but it really works anywhere. And I often think of the woman caught in adultery um, as the perfect example. Jesus walks in the scene. It's clearly a trap. And he puts himself in between those who wanted to stone her and this woman. He physically puts himself there. And then he addresses them, which is in bystander intervention. After the fact of intervening, you would go to the man and say, hey, did you realize how you came across? I don't think she appreciated that. I sense that she felt a little uncomfortable. Dude, what are you talking about? No, dog. I, I really think that that wasn't how you meant to come across. I could tell she was uncomfortable. Being able to call their crap <laughs> before it gets out of control. We have no idea the amount we could save and the heartache we could save if we can stop things before they ever get going. And then right. thirdly, we go to the woman. Hey, I noticed so-and-so was talking. We're going to call him Doug. I noticed Doug was talking to you. Your middle name isn't Doug. I hope, pray it's not. <laughs> I hope Doug wasn't talking to you inappropriately. I noticed uh, just the way he was talking or his body language. Give this woman a minute to feel seen and known. There's nothing as isolating as sexual harassment and assault. In fact, it's the leading indicator of derailing a woman's career and life hmm. is sexual harassment and assault. So if we can go in there and, and just that anybody can do this, anyone can be like, Hey, do you want to go get a good, get a coffee no. and then approach the man if appropriate later, and then go to her, Hey, are you okay? Did you need to talk to somebody? I'm happy to go with you. Did you need to go talk to HR? Did you need to go talk to an elder? I'll go with you. Hmm. Being able to be a, a person who lends strength in moments when we see impropriety is valuable in ways that we cannot even imagine because before this ever gets off the ground, we in the smallest of ways, in ways that will cost us nothing, not our platform, not our place, in ways that will cost us nothing, we can step in. Now, of course, there's other ways that we'll have to count the cost and have to speak up. If we're calling the police with somebody, that's a whole different situation. Or if we're gonna go sit before a board with somebody, that's a whole different situation. And there is a moment to count the cost and realize your proximity to power but it's worth it nonetheless. Right, right. Well, our listener named Doug is sweating right now. He's sweating bullets. Sorry, Doug. But, Love you but, so much. Uh, to God be the glory. I, I, I mentioned, you mentioned the idea of putting like women in positions of power, which I agree with. Like there was a, I've, I've shared this before and I'm nervous because this is a very specific story. So like, I, I hope he doesn't, uh, I, I hope he doesn't hear this and then uh, get, get all flustered about it. But there was a pastor and he's done a really good job speaking out about abuse and, and, I mean, really has, and, and, and disagree with him on just about everything, but in that area, he's been very vocal, which is a good first step. Yeah. Um, but also like, again, disagreeing on the method of it is like, you know, he was wanting to put on a conference, talk about abuse, 
but was like, I don't want to have female speakers at the event because I don't believe in having women in the pulpit. And it's like, bro, (laughs) that's like, you're kind of missing. And, and again, it comes back to that thing of like, to understand the problem, you have to talk to the people who are mainly being affected by the problem. Like you have to listen to those people. Um, But you, you cover something in the book. And again, it was another one of those gut check kind of like, you know, Hey, is this something that you're falling into? Or is this a trap here? And it's the idea of that faux egalitarianism. Like it's that idea of, you know, uh, putting a woman here because it makes the system look better or, you know, with some more progressive churches, you know, oh, we'll give her a pastor title, even though she's really just has the power of being the pastor's wife. You know, we tend to like throw that kind of, kind of stuff out there. So how do we do that in churches, organizations? How do we do that without just filling a quota? Like how do we, how do we make sure that we're putting women in positions where they have legitimate power um, instead of just putting them in a spot to check a box or to say like, you know, maybe this will shut everybody up if we have like a woman here, or if we put, you know, a token, you know, person of color here on the board, now we're good. Like, how do you really incorporate someone into your organization? Especially for someone, cause I have a lot of pastors that listen, especially for pastors who are listening, who are saying, you know, man, I, it's literally all guys. Like it's literally just like, Hey, there's me. And then there's six elders. And that's like, who runs the church? Like there's no female voice. There's no person of color. Like how do they start doing that without it just being, we want to check a box. We want to do this. Yeah. I think you have to have an internal conversation and really recognize how patriarchy has no roots in the gospel. And that Greco-Roman influence in the first century bled into the church. It wasn't the other way around that bled into the church. And you see Jesus encounter with women. And we often hold a few words of Paul over the entire life of Jesus. But when you look at Jesus encounter with women and the way he empowered them and the way he allowed them to lead and, and, and speak and preach and disciple, we have clear evidence of of women having opportunity and it not being a bad thing. And we're talking about the first century where women couldn't vote. Women were uh, as low as slaves where women couldn't even uh, speak in court because it was a, they'd be accused of either uh, personal gain or fear of punishment. So if Jesus in the first century was able to find a way to see that women had inherent value, that the potential and the spirit running through their veins was valuable for the advancement of the kingdom, so must we, so must we. And putting women not, as you, as you mentioned, just in performative positions, but in actual positions of power is trickier than it sounds. And I'm glad you wanted to expand on this because I was in executive leadership for seven years and it was all performative. It was all performative. I, I really don't believe that I had a valued voice and I was optimistic enough to be like, no, I can have change from within. We can do this. I believe and what God is doing here. So I'm staying and we need people to do that. But of course, if there's abuse of power, we've got to, we've got to examine the whole system. But for you, who's listening and you think, how do I do this? Where do I start? If you're asking yourself, who's missing from the table, you're still putting yourself at the head of the table. If you ask yourself, who needs to be at this table? Myself, who, who needs to sit as equals around this table? Not me at the head of the table, but around this table. Who is going to help bear the image and give the gospel expression of this church or this faith community in this, in this season of, of, of my church? What does that look like? What women need to be in this place? I understand if your theology or doctrine doesn't allow female elders, 
create an advisory board, create an advisory team, you are going to lose out. You're going to lose out on the wisdom and the intellect and the maturity and the understanding of women without them at the table. Half your church, half your church is likely women, if not more. Church attendance skews over 60% women. So to have them in places of power, asking their opinions, asking them what they think, asking them to lead key initiatives in your church is valuable, not only to you, not only to women, but for the whole. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious, like, so we talked a lot about prevention, like, and how to like avoid these things, but the reality is most of it is the Christianity Today, RNS. It's like, here's an article with like all, I mean, the, the Ravi Zacharias story, I have someone coming on tomorrow talking about uh, some of their research on it and, and wrapping up kind of some of that story. But it's like, there's so many spots along the way where it's like, this should have been dealt with. This should have been stopped. This should have been stopped. Like there were so many clear egregious violations from, I mean, just credential fraud back in college. I mean, like that's how far back all of this was. Um, but I am curious, like when we're dealing with the fallout of this, like when we're dealing with actually, you know, being open to hearing the, the, when it comes to that count the cost moment, um, how can, how can corporate bodies of people be better, you know, serving victims, be better serving people who have been abused? Um, and, and how can we shift the conversation from being, you know, from a, a Lorraine Thompson who has been, you know, has been mocked and dragged through the mud for the last, you know, five years, four years, um, versus, you know, embracing them and like seeing real change happen. Like, like what can the, the body do better to, to kind of serve, serve victim victims and survivors? Yeah. I'm going to be very specific and just lay out a few things. Number one, whoever is accused of abuse of power needs to be put on leave, whether it's true or not, he must be put on leave. You don't have to announce that he must be put on leave. If a man is allowed to continue to to lead through uh, known allegations, he has time to control the narrative. It is so vital to put this person on leave. Second, Mm. we must treat those coming with sensitive information, not as abusers, but as victims. There is nothing worse than a victim coming forward and being treated as the guilty party. And it happens time and time again, that the, the abuser in power is treated as the victim. The roles are reversed and the, and the, and the true victim is treated like you're guilty of upsetting this system. And there's more pain and frustration over that than the misconduct that actually took place. Right. They're so attacking coming the with, man of God or whatever. Yep, yep, of course. Him. Totally. Totally. She has got a Jezebel spirit. The list goes on. So being able to go with compassionate care, how can we serve you? What do you need? Provide anonymity. Women have lost too much. We know it. it's why we stay silent in the first place. We self-silence long before someone will silence us. Mm-hmm. And when we finally do speak up, we are silenced with threats. We're silenced with NDAs. We're silenced with um, abusive power and mistreatment. And of course, as you just named shame. And so being able to give women anonymity, safety, respect, compassion, and immediately offer counseling and care. Now we could think, oh, but what if she's making it up? Less than 1%. Research shows less than 1% of women would do this. They would speak up unnecessarily. They would speak up with false allegations. That's just not what, that's normally not what you're dealing with. Right. So we've got to be able to see her as somebody to protect 
and care for. She is the one on the side of the road and we are the good Samaritan. We are not to walk past. We are not to glaze over. We are to put her on, give her our own oil, use our own money to take care of her, to give complete care, not treating her like the guilty party. Of course, you want to get to the bottom of the allegations. Of course, you want to find out what's true and when it happened and have evidence. But what often happens is we ask her, well, where's the evidence? Well, where's this? Well, where's that? And because she can't string together the events in chronological order, we accuse her of lying. And in reality, that's proof of trauma. If she cannot spit out the events in the exact order, that is absolutely proof of trauma. Any psychologist would share that. So being able to give her care, and this is where, where what we've missed. This is what we've missed. We put men, um, we, we give them standing ovations and we give them the benefit of the doubt. And we, we don't offer counseling or care or anything necessary to rebuild. Did this woman have to take time off? Pay her what she is due. Did this woman uh, lose her job or decide to quit because of this abuse of power because she was trapped? Back pay her. We must be willing to go back and make right. And then of course, thirdly, we must, we must address the system. How did this happen? This does not happen in a vacuum. There are enables, enablers at every level. There are complicit active and passive enablers. Be able to weed through the system and understand how this happened and putting practices of accountability in place so it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Now, often we'll do step one, step two, or step three, but we must do all of them. And lastly, we must be transparent about it all. And here's the danger of not being transparent. The abuser of power is likely going to move on and start again, whatever he just did, because this is a pattern. This is who he is. If he's narcissistic, he's narcissistic. And if you are not transparent with facts, he gets to control the narrative. He gets to tell his version and he'll often do it with detail. And so of course we want to protect victims. There's a way to be transparent without revealing who was harmed and the, and the insidious nature, but we can tell what he did. We can tell what this man did and how he abused his power. In my situation, I'm seeing a man build an empire once again, because there wasn't transparency like there could have been. And so what story are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the detailed story he offers? Or are we going to believe the vague story of a cover-up or yeah. this, this grand scheme to oust a man of God? Hmm. There has to be transparency. You know, you look at the church has a lot to learn from Google who after uh, Andy Rubin, an executive at Google, uh, took advantage of a lower level employee, he was given a $90 million payout. And employees had no clue of what he had done. He was paid off and sent on his merry way. There was no change in bylaws, nothing. And so when it was found out, there was a worldwide, not nationwide, but a worldwide walkout of all their employees at various levels of leadership demanding accountability and transparency and demanding that there be a low level employee on the board Hmm. who could bring their concerns and who could also deliver the information down to the lower level of what's happening. How is this being handled? This can be any of us taking advantage of next if they're not going to address the, the systems that enabled this predator to easily prey on a lower level employee. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. Yeah. And it is, it's, you see it over and over again, that it is a pattern. Like you see this happen and repeat and, and the wind is kind of to their backs whenever they go to the next place, you know, because they get to leave with just the resume, you know, they get to leave with, Hey, you built this large organization, you did this. And now it's time for you to do the next big thing. A lot of times 
pastors that leave go to bigger churches or they get hired on, on, on bigger staffs and things like that. It's, it's shocking. I mean, you mentioned Carl Lentz earlier, like he's living his best life right now. He's got a beach house in, in uh, California, California and he's just, yeah. he's get he's just chilling, you know, like he's, yeah. he's, he's got kind of an upgrade. He, he doesn't have to worry about preaching on Sundays. He gets to just hang out at the beach and just do what he wants to do. And it's, right. it's pretty and shocking add to that. Uh, we often offer hefty severances. We line yeah. their pockets with cash and send them on their merry Which, way. Why do we do a severance whatsoever? <laughs> it's like one of those things that just doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. But um, I am curious. I know we're running, we're running to the near the end of our time, but uh, I'm, I'm really curious. You've given a lot of different practical pieces. There's a lot that needs to be implemented. And, you know, I spoke with someone, um, her episode actually drops tomorrow. So the 17th, um, and, and she's been, she's been working with this subject since the seventies. Like she had a rape crisis oh, wow. center. She's been, and, uh, you know, I talked to her about it and like, you know, the seventies, if it's hard to talk about now, it was hard to talk about mm. the issues of, of that stuff back then. And, uh, you know, she, I, one of the things I asked her was like, the conversation is opened, you know, that's a big step, like the me too yeah. movement, you know, love it or hate it. Like it's got us talking about this conversation. Right. And, um, and she said, she said she struggled in the seventies to get three people in a room to talk about it, you know? And she said, wow. now that there's, it trends on Twitter and now that people talk about it is pretty amazing. Um, but I, I asked her, I was like, what would you like to see next? Like, what, what would you like to see happen next? And I, I kind of want to ask you that same question is, is, you know, it's not going to change overnight. There's systems yeah. that the Southern Baptist convention alone is dealing with this right now is like, we have let this go for so long. Like, how do we start course correcting? And even bigger than that, most of them aren't thinking about that, but the, there's a lot of voices that are pushing, like, how do you change the course? What do you want to see happen? So if you could say, Hey, here's one thing I've wrote, wrote about, maybe it's me haven't even written about, but there's one thing I'd like to see happen in the next year within churches, within organizations that would be radically different from these last few decades, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, I would say across the board in churches, a safe place for women to come. Our, our elders, our lay leaders, our small group leaders to be trained in compassionate, empathetic, listening, active care because this is happening in every church in the world. And obviously we're seeing it on a grand scale in America right now with the reporting of amazing journalists, but this is happening. This isn't a when, or this happened at the church down the road. This is happening in your church. The amount of women in domestic violence situations, the amount of women in abusive situations, the amount of women who are gonna be abused by somebody in your pews is so high. So this isn't something that we can ignore, as you just no. said. This has to be going forward with compassionate, empathetic care. And that's going to cost money. It's going to cost mm. training and that's going to cost money. So I'd love to see an, an investment in empathetic, compassionate care, no matter if you're a small group leader, no matter if you're leading women's ministry, men's ministry across the board, because what happens is the silencing stops by even the lowest level people who are judgmental and be like, oh, that couldn't have happened. He would never do that. So a woman goes underground immediately with her, um, with her experience no. and it never gets to the elders. We're only seeing the bravest of the brave come forward. And that's still thousands and thousands of people. So think of if that's, if that's 10%, think of what we're missing. No. So if we had everyone trained in, Hey, what does compassionate care look like when come when, when someone comes to you with dissonant, jarring, sensitive matters, here's how we, how we first respond. No. I think that would be a game changer. 
Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in the book, like when someone has to suppress their kind of secret of what happened, like it doesn't go away. Like the situation's still there. It's just now they're dealing with it instead of the corporate kind of body dealing with it. And I think that's really important. We do have to have situations where, you know, because I think it is like, especially when I look at so many stories where it's a, you know, it's someone who's from a super like low income family, they're attending the church and like, there's a lot to lose because that might be their lifeline. There might be like, we don't, it's all set up where the the higher ups can say, well, I don't know him like that. Or I don't know her like that. I don't know this situation the way that you do. You must be misunderstanding something. So yeah, that's, that's really, really key. Um, I, I know we're at the end here. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, everybody definitely check out uh, Pray Tell. Um, I think it's it comes out March officially, right? It's, March it's, 16th. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, pick up a copy. It's it's really, really good. Uh, really, really good book and uh, worth checking out for sure. But thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.